Have you ever wondered why humans sing? No matter where you go, no matter what culture, no matter what time period, people have always sang. Why is it that human beings from our earliest days have this inclination to sing? As a father of five children, I've had a front row seat to their songs. In fact, young children, even before they can utter complete sentences, complete thoughts, they will sing sounds. And when they don't know the words, it doesn't bother them. It doesn't stop them. They just mumble something right through, just like I do when I'm singing because I can't ever remember the words. Even if they don't know the words, they, they give voice to that young song in their hearts. It may not be in tune. It may not even make sense. But when you watch it, nothing about that seems odd or out of place. No one goes, why is that kid singing? Doesn't he know the words? What is he doing, right? It just seems natural and right when a child sings. Now, as we become older, our songs become more complex. We, we start to learn um, how poetry works. And sadly, as we become older, we also grow socially aware we recognize that maybe I may not sing just right in tune and so I want to lower my voice or I may muffle it. And our inclination to sing becomes muted by self-judgment and fear of being judged by others, right? But there's a lesson here to be learned from children. Jennifer Hamity, who's a psychologist, author, and voice coach, she writes this. Children don't need to understand the composite of sand in order to play on the beach. They don't have to know the molecular structure of water to splash around in the waves and to lose themselves in tasting the raindrops that land on their tongues. Why do I sing? I sing to open up. I sing to share. I sing to discover who I am. I sing to discover who I want to be. I sing to transcend my body. I sing to expand out the boundaries of my emotions to feel more, to be more, to grow to fly. I sing to tell the, uh, uh, the story of what I've learned and to ask others to share their stories with me. I sing to feel and I sing to love. What Jennifer so beautifully expresses is that singing expresses what words and thoughts often alone cannot. Through singing, we lament tragedy and loss there's something just cathartic about singing. There's a, there's a release that happens. And, and it seems like only sometimes singing is the only way to, to let what needs to come out so that we can find healing. And when we're experiencing these joyous occasions, we sing because words fail to capture all of our enjoyment and everything that we're feeling. And when we're singing, we're inviting others into that enjoyment, into our song. Singing has a way, unlike anything else, to really connect our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. And it, and it moves us in inexplicable ways. Singing actually connects people together as we form deep emotional bonds through our experiences together. This morning, we're continuing our series, The Songs of Advent, and we're coming up on Zechariah's song. It's really interesting in Luke's gospel, the way he's chosen to write his story. Every time someone is told about the birth of Christ, they're just overcome with joy and anticipation. And eventually it erupts into song. You, you see it in the text as, as the, the prose becomes indented poetry. 
John Wesley said singing is as much the language of holy joy as praying is of holy desire. Friends, if you get the Advent story right, you will not merely respond with intellectual agreement. When you get the Advent story right, there's this deep, soul-stirring joy that's, that, that, that leads to our singing. It's the reason why there's the song, Joy to the World, the Lord Has Come. It's the reason we have Christmas carols. At the heart of Advent is the good news of Jesus coming into the world, and that news produces uncontainable joy that bursts forth in song. So the question we're going to ask today is do you have the songs of Advent in your heart? This morning we're looking at Zechariah's joy in Luke 1 as he sings for joy at the coming or the advent of Christ. We'll see his joyous song of redemption comes in three parts. First, we're going to see the visitation as God draws near to his people in the arrival of the Messiah. Next, we'll see the vindication as the people of God are delivered from the hands of their enemies. And finally, Zechariah will sing about the victory of God as he brings all of his enemies to ultimate defeat. So we'll see the visitation, the vindication, and the victory. Let's start with the visitation. Now, before we get into Zechariah's song, let's look at Zechariah's story. He was a priest in Israel, and his wife Elizabeth was barren. This all uh, is told in Luke chapter 1. Now Luke also tells us, in addition to Elizabeth being barren, the fact that they couldn't have children, Luke tells us that they were righteous. Now that's important, because people at this time in particular often mistook barrenness as evidence of unrighteousness. So if they would come across a couple who had tried to have children and couldn't, people would assume oh, God must be cutting off their family line. God does not want that to go on any longer. But that's really bad theology. That's not what's going on. God doesn't um, punish people by cutting off their line uh, for unrighteousness because in that sense, everyone is unrighteous and no one would have children, right? But he tells us that they were righteous. So he doesn't want us to make that same mistake. They were unable to have children. And now in their old age, they've basically um, given up hope of having children. For them, that, that ship has sailed. Now Luke tells us one day, while Zechariah was serving as a priest in the temple, he was doing his priestly duties. He was um, lighting the incense inside the, the holy place. And he was visited by an angel. The angel said that Elizabeth would bear a son, and they were to name him John. Now the angel would go on to tell Zechariah that his son would be a great prophet and his role would be to prepare the way for the Lord to visit and rescue his people. Now imagine this. Anytime someone is visited by an angel, there's a lot to take in and he's telling him now you're going to have a child and you just think about all of that, that, that hope and that, that he's essentially at some point just kind of put away and let it go, kind of buried it. And now the angels, it, just talking about it, is stirring all of that back up again. It's a lot to take in. And he responds to the angel. Zechariah said to the angel, well, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. That's a, just a nice way of saying, hey, she's really old. There's no way she's having children. And then the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. 
And behold, you will be silent. You will be unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, what the angel tells him is pretty unbelievable. And he doesn't believe Gabriel's words. And he essentially demands evidence. That's what he's getting at when he says, well, how will I know that this is going to happen? And his posture here, the angel can can read it, is one of doubt-seeking validation instead of faith-seeking understanding. See, when Mary receives that that unbelievable news, she's going, okay, let me, I want to understand how this is all going to work, not give me a sign to know that it's going to happen. She says, how will this all play out? Just so you know, let it be as you've said, I'm, I'm the servant of the Lord. Whereas Zechariah's posture is more like, well, how will I know? I'm an old man, my wife's an old woman, you're gonna have to give me a sign. And so it's like the angel says, I'll I'll give you a sign. Here, you're gonna be mute now. You're not gonna get to talk for a whole year. So this, the, the angel gives him evidence that, that he can take back with him and in the form of a rebuke, and he becomes mute, unable to talk for the duration of his wife's pregnancy. Now think about this year of silence, right? He can't speak. It, like, like when, when, when that's removed, you've got a lot of time on your hands now, right? And he's just taking it all in. Shortly thereafter, his wife Elizabeth conceives, and there's life in his womb. Six months later, Mary comes to visit. She's also got a miraculous child in her womb, and, and Mary stays with him for three months. As a priest, he's, 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 he's saturated in the scriptures, so you know he's, he's going back and he's looking through and going, okay, God must be on the move. Something must be going on. And so he starts to saturate himself in the scriptures to see how, the, how God's plan of redemption and restoration, his promised coming Messiah, how all of that is going to fit together and how he's playing a role in that right now and finally the day comes John the Baptist is born and after eight days on the day when they would circumcise um, uh, uh, the males that's when they would give them the name and we pick up the story in Luke chapter 1 verse 62 all these people are gathered together and they're going what's his name going to be and remember he can't speak And so they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing to God. See, when he said his name is going to be John, they they thought that was interesting because he didn't have any relatives named John. And and it was kind of customary to name your, 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 your first son after you. So they all thought, you're going to name him Zechariah. And he says, no, no, his name's going to be John. And they're thinking, well, that's not a family name. Where, where did that name come from? And immediately after he obeys, names him John, his voice is opened up and he sings blessings to God. And we have Zechariah's speech uh, recorded for us. Now imagine if you had been mute for a whole year, what would your first words be? Thanks be to God. For Zechariah, he praises the Lord. Not what we might think, like I can finally speak. I've got so much to say. I got some, I got words for you over here. I got some stuff to, you know what I mean? Just like letting it all out, like Festivus, you know? I got problems with you people. That's for my Seinfeld friends, right? He praises the Lord, not for being able to talk again. He praises the Lord 
because God has visited and redeemed his people. Look what he says, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Bible tells us that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we get in this, in this song is a mix of praise and prophecy. And I'll help unpack that as we go on. Zechariah says that God is to be blessed and honored with praise because he's visited and redeemed his people. Listen, even though Jesus hasn't been born yet, even though God hasn't fully accomplished his plan of redemption, Zechariah speaks about it in the past tense. He says he's visited and redeemed his people. Now, when the prophets speak of God's future action, but with past tense uh, grammar, it's bad grammar, but really good theology. Even though it hasn't happened yet, he's saying you can consider it done because God always delivers on his promise. When God gives his word, his promise is settled business. It will come to pass full stop. There's no contingencies that God has to work around. Now, throughout the Old Testament, this idea of God visiting his people is a phrase that comes up over and over and over again. And anytime you see that phrase, it's saying that God is um, a, a, a present in a special way, and it's usually for a special purpose. See, God's not just coming to hang out to kind of catch up on what's been going on, to, to have some casual conversations. When God comes to visit his people, it's for one of two purposes. It's either for judgment or redemption, justice or grace. Now, to be really clear, God is to be praised for both of those. And I know that's hard for our uh, 21st century ears to hear. We get God being praised for grace but when it comes to the idea of the justice of God, that's kind of one of those things like we just like to forget about. But the Bible never pits the, the justice of God against the grace of God. Both of them are intrinsic to his character. So much, in fact, that if God was only gracious and not just, he wouldn't be God, right? Just like a judge who doesn't administer justice is a bad judge, Right? If, criminal, if, if criminals come before him or her and he says, hey, you know what, I'm feeling you know, like we should just let this, this slide, right? The victim feels victimized all over again. We demand justice for crimes committed. And God is no different. He is right and loving to punish sin. He is also right and loving to extend mercy and it's up to God's prerogative to decide how he chooses to administer his justice and grace. That said, here Zechariah praises God for visiting his people to redeem them through the promised Messiah. In fact, if you look at his song uh, from, uh, uh, from a 30,000 uh, foot view, the beginning and the end are, are bookended by this idea of God's visitation of the Messiah. So here in verse 68, he says, we see a horn of salvation being raised up in the house of David. And at the end of 78, he says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So what are those two things? The horn of salvation from the house of David um, it, it, it is a way to speak about 
um, uh, the, the Messiah. So it's symbolic language. In the Old Testament, animal horns were used as weapons for fighting um, and protection because they're, they're sharp. And so if you kill an animal, now you've got a weapon as well. And they became symbols for strength and power and victory. And if you cut off the, uh, uh, the, the, the tiny end, it becomes like a trumpet, right? But it becomes a shofar and you can blow into it and create um, um, sounds. And so this would become battle cries um, in, uh, uh, and symbolizing victory. So these animal horns became symbols of salvation. So here's an example in Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield. And listen, God is the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So when they're talking about um, uh, victory and God doing battle for them, it's this, sim- this symbolism to say, um, just like the same way when we win in victory, we, we blow that horn of salvation, God is my horn of salvation. And so now Zechariah is saying, Jesus is that horn of salvation who has come to visit and redeem his people. Think about that. This title that was applied to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is now being applied to the Messiah, to Jesus, whose very name, Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. God saves. The Lord is salvation. But not only is Jesus the horn of salvation, in verse 78, he is the sunrise from on high. Luke 1, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now this is capturing all of that imagery in Isaiah chapter 9 where the prophet says, look at the screens. The people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them light has shone. It's like you're sitting before the, 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 the brink of dawn and you go outside and it's darkness, right? Deep darkness. But then the sunrise comes and brings the light. That's what the Messiah is doing. In a land of deep darkness, he is that sunrise from on high bringing a new day. John says that Jesus is the light of the world who shines in the midst of our darkness. So here you have these bookends of the song. At the beginning, the Messiah, Jesus, is the horn of salvation from the the house of David. And he's also the sunrise, God visiting his people to bring redemption. This visitation is both the horn of salvation from the line of David and the sunrise from on high. It's like he's saying, as the son of David, he is fully man. As the sunrise from on high, he is the son of God. So in Christ, the earthly dimension comes together with the heavenly dimension to be the God-man himself. This is Zechariah's poetic and lyrical way to reference the divinity and humanity of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, does Zechariah have all of his theology worked out? Does he understand the full complexities of of well-thought-out Trinitarian theology? Probably not. It would take the church 300 years to to kind of sift through all of that and come to that um, beautiful reality. But is the Holy Spirit inspiring a song in his heart to be sung by the church as we marvel at the humanity and divinity of Christ? Absolutely, absolutely. Zechariah sings for joy, praising God, because all of us live in a land of deep darkness. On our own, we are powerless to shine a light powerful enough to overcome 
the darkness. Haven't you felt that way? When you go through the headlines, when you see things are going on, and you just think to yourself, there's just nothing that I could do to make this stop. There's nothing I could do to make that pain go away. There's nothing I could do. I don't have a flashlight bright enough to get rid of all this darkness. How, How many of you have ever felt that way? It's the natural response. And the reason we are joyless and joy-deprived, it's because we look around in a world of darkness and we come to the right conclusion that it needs light. And then we realize we don't have a light strong enough to, uh, uh, to shine and overcome that darkness. And so our culture often tells us, well, then just look inside for your own light, right? Maybe you have something um, lit up inside of you. And so maybe at least you can have your own little microcosm of light and joy. But here's the problem. When you do an honest self-inventory, when you really look inside, you realize that despite a couple of few flickers going on, there's a lot of darkness inside here too. So not only is the darkness outside there, but the darkness is inside here as well. And if that were the end of the story, you would be left in despair and gloom. But God, being rich in tender mercy, gives us the light of the world, not only to shine the light out there, but to shine the light in here. And his light overcomes all darkness. It brings about redemption and it produces a joy in us that is not contingent or based on your circumstance. Zechariah is able to sing with uncontainable joy because God has not left us alone in our own darkness, but he has visited us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and he can't help but sing. So what fuels your joy? What causes you to sing? It's a great question because whatever you're singing about is what's fueling your joy. What, what causes you to sing is so intimately connected to who you are. So what makes your heart sing? Is it that God has visited you? That you have the songs of, of Advent in your heart? Or is it something else that will eventually flicker and burn away? Zechariah sings because God has visited his people to bring about redemption. But he also sings for joy at the vindication of God. Look with me at verse 71. So he goes back to the beginning. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now let me unpack that. Zechariah's song praises God that he shows mercy and remembers his promises to deliver and vindicate his people from their enemies. So what he's doing is he's tying together the mercy of God and the covenant of God, that he's remembered his holy covenant. So what's the mercy of God? That means that God chooses to love and bless us, not because of our own intrinsic loveliness or our deservedness, but purely because God has decided to bless us and show us favor and mercy. You can't um, uh, make God show you favor because we're not deserving of it. The reason God is merciful and gracious is because God himself is rich and mercy and love. That's it. 
He himself is rich in mercy and he decides to give it to you. Let me show you by way of the scriptures. Ephesians 2, verse four and five. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So here's what happens. God extends mercy on believers while we're still in our sin, in our deadness, in our undeservedness, simply and beautifully because he is rich in mercy. He has an overwhelming, overflowing amount of mercy and he extends it to us. Now, you might be asking, but why us? How does God determine how he, who he uh, gives this mercy to? And the answer from the Bible is, I don't know. The, the Bible never tells us exactly God's rubric or, or deciphering mechanism. He doesn't. The, the Bible doesn't give us insight into how God chooses, just that he does so because he is the God of mercy. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is, is preaching um, to his people, and he writes to them uh, in, in some early chapters, and he says, don't think that God chose you as a people because you were more numerous than people or because you were more righteous than other people. No, no, I simply chose you because I chose you. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord your God uh, belongs in heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth uh, uh, to your, let me start over. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Moses is saying, God owns everything. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Don't miss this. Moses says the reason God chose his people is because he simply decided to set his love in on them. That's it. He just made a decision. Now, I don't know why he chose them over another people, but it just says it wasn't because you were so worthy and deserving of it. It wasn't like God scanned around and said, these are the people most deserving of my love. He just said, I'm gonna love these people right now. And if that weren't enough, and he's extended mercy to them, he binds himself to them through covenant. Covenants in general establish a relationship between two or more parties based on promises to each other. So when God binds himself to his people through covenants, he decides to be our God and for us to be his people. Since creation, if you read from the beginning of the Bible to the end, you will see that there's this desire of God to have for himself a people who would thrive and flourish and enjoy him forever. Very quickly in the Bible, Genesis 3, sin enters in and breaks that relational bond. But God, being rich in mercy, continues to pursue us and to redeem what's been lost. That's the storyline of the Bible. And as God works out his plan, he establishes several key covenants to work out his plan. There's a covenant with Abraham, which creates a people for his own possession. There's a covenant with Moses that establishes law and order. There's a covenant with David that uh, promises to provide a Messiah king. And as the storyline of the Bible unfolds, the, the scope of the covenant, the depth of the covenant, and the breadth of the covenant increases. And as the Old Testament comes to a close, God reveals the new covenant. 
It's the highlight of all his covenants. And what happens in the new covenant is the scope of God's people expands from its Jewish origins to include people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. There's a, there's a deepening spirituality as God's presence moves from the temple into the hearts of men and women. And the Bible calls this the new covenant. We see this in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel and some other places. Look what it says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. If you're the note-taking type, also write down Ezekiel 34 and 36. I'm not going to read those passages today, but in those passages, God talks about replacing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. He talks about bringing peace and restoration, rebuilding the ruined places, and even replanting the Garden of Eden. What he's doing is saying, There's, I'm, I have a new covenant with humanity, and I will gather for myself a people, and I will give you a peaceful place to live, a rebuilt home to dwell with God forever. The Old Testament promises the new covenant. Jesus accomplishes the new covenant. And then the rest of the New Testament is how that new covenant is applied to believers. Now, why am I going through all this new covenant history with you? It's because Zechariah is saying all of those promises in the Old Testament made hundreds of years ago are coming to fulfillment through the visitation of God's Messiah before our very eyes. We might have thought God forgot his promises to us, but he hasn't. He's remembered his covenant, and, he, and, and, and Zechariah is praising God because he's seeing those things unfold before his very eyes. Now listen, when the Bible says that God has remembered his covenant, it's not that God forgot it or misplaced it and then finally found it when he was you know, rearranging the, the, the furniture in heaven. It is impossible for an all-knowing, all-powerful God to forget anything. What this is, is this is the Bible's way of saying he's bringing those promises into fulfillment. We think a hundred years is a long time, but in the eternality of God, it's just, it's just a whisper, right? And he's bringing about his promises in his timing, and his timing is always perfect. Zechariah goes on to talk about God saving his people from their enemies, both in verse 71 and verse 74. And you remember how I said that this song is a mix of praise and prophecy? Here's where that prophecy part comes into play. Zechariah says that God will save his people from their enemies. And this is Zechariah primarily looking forward. It's a forward-looking declaration of what God will do as he delivers us from our enemies. Now listen, he is singing the song in the presence of his family, right? All of them would have thought enemies, God's gonna save us from our enemies. They would have all thought about the current Roman occupation, 
And while it is true that God saves us and delivers us from oppression and persecution, and it's right for us to ask God to do that and to pray to him, will you deliver me from this present moment? The, the New Testament, the Bible, never, not once, guarantees us complete and total protection and deliverance from our enemies today. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says um, you should expect persecution and trials. First Peter says, don't think it strange when you encounter sufferings and trials of various kinds, right? He's saying, expect it. You live in a broken world. Things break. You live in a sinful world with sinful people. You're going to be persecuted. Don't think it's strange that this is going on. Deliverance from my enemies, deliverance from persecution in its fullest sense is a forward-looking final promise. And here is the Christian's hope. No matter the trial, no matter the persecution, even to the point of death, it's why Christians can endure martyrdom, that none of it will be able to take away the eternal life that we have in Christ. Whatever is taken away from you in this life, you will receive it hundredfold in the life to come. So when you combine the mercy of God with the covenants of God, with the deliverance of God, you get this beautiful word, vindication. That is God vindicating his people. It's a great word. It means to be free from allegation and blame. It means to be justified. If someone is bringing charges against you and you're cleared of them, your name is restored, you're vindicated. But the word vindication also has this semantic range that means to be delivered from attack and enemies. And in Christianity, God's people are vindicated in both senses of the word. We're justified, our sins are forgiven, and we become free from allegations and blame. The new covenant I read in Jeremiah 31 said, God will forgive our sins and remember them no more. And that doesn't mean that God has forgotten them. It means that they are not counted against you anymore. Your name is cleared. And because we're in Christ, we are more than conquerors so that nothing, no amount of trial, no amount of persecution will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 8, Paul brings both of these ideas together in a profound way. Romans 8 verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? He's talking about persecution, living in a sinful world. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Whatever's taken from you, he will give it back. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Remember I talked about the allegations and the blame? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised. And he's now at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, and add anything you want to that list. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says, I am sure, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the believer's hope. That is our assurance of pardon. And so when the mercy and promises and deliverance of God come together, believer in Christ, my brother and sister, you are vindicated in every sense of the word. You go look up on the Merriam-Webster Dictionary at what vindication means, all of those are yours in Christ. And then as the standard comes to a close, Zechariah tells us why God vindicates us. Look again at 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hands of our enemy, here's the reason, that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Why, my brother and sister, are you redeemed? Zechariah gives us the reason that we would serve him without fear, without fear of anything else in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Look at me right now. We are not freed. We are not redeemed so that we can just go and do as we please. We've been set free to serve the Lord with our time, with our talents, and our treasure. When you realize what God has done for you in Christ, it should produce in you a holy desire to serve him with everything we have. The Christian does not serve out of a dutiful reluctance. We serve with an impassioned gratitude a joy-filled desire to live out the life that he's given us. Seven Mile, do you have this Advent song welling up in your heart? Are you serving the Lord out of joy in this humble recognition that God has vindicated you in every sense of the word? Zechariah's song is being fueled by the fact that God has visited his people. He has vindicated his people. And now let's look at the last verses to see how he sings about the victory of God. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In these last verses here, Zechariah speaks over his son and he tells him that he will go before the Lord, the Messiah, to prepare the way. That John the Baptist's work is gonna be one of preparation for the visitation of the Messiah. And in this last stanza, Zechariah speaks about this comprehensive victory of God through Christ Jesus. And again, we talked about it earlier, but he says, Jesus, the Messiah, is the sunrise of God from on high. He's the light of the world, come to shine his light into our darkness. And he also sings and says that we will have the forgiveness of sins through the tender mercy of God. This week as I was preparing, that phrase just struck me, the tender mercy of God. Of God. As you think about God becoming man, coming down, it speaks to the life and death of, G- of Christ. Jesus became tender. He became vulnerable to bring about the mercy of God. Think about it. Jesus came to die. He had to become uh, vulnerable, weakened so that he could die. Jesus became the man of sorrows, as the prophet Isaiah said, so that we could become a people of joy. Jesus became the man of sorrows so that we could sing for joy. That's why Jesus came. Look at Jesus' own words. All of these are Jesus' own recorded words about why he came. 
Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as he was speaking about his pending uh, crucifixion, he says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. The whole reason Jesus came was to accomplish salvation for his people, to forgive them of their sins, to guide our feet to the way of peace. And all of that was accomplished through his death. Zechariah says that without the sunrise of Christ, all of us would still be sitting in the darkness and defeat of death. But Jesus Christ, the great sunrise, conquers darkness and death. This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, he's talking about Adam, by Adam came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at the coming of those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end. Paul's looking at the end end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father after, after destroying every rule, every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is the comprehensive victory of God through Christ. Jesus will fully and finally accomplish God's plan of redemption. He comes and he visits his people in the flesh to vindicate us in every sense of the word and to accomplish the comprehensive victory of God so that even death itself is destroyed. Now, while Jesus' first advent, his first coming, dealt the decisive blow to sin and death, his second coming, the one that, that Paul was just speaking about, his second advent will deal the final uh, death blow so that sin and death are destroyed forever. And that's why advent is marked by singing and joy, because Jesus accomplishes the victory of God. Duke Kwan, who's a, a pastor in D.C., says this, Advent, Christmas, and the hope of Christ's returns means that violence and oppression, injustice and sin itself, even death itself, have an expiration date. Advent means also that the new heavens and the new earth, the perfection of this world and our own hearts in Christ have a guaranteed on-time arrival. Death itself is coming to an end. That's why we sing at Christmas. We don't sing at Christmas because Christians are a sentimental people. We don't sing at Christmas because Christians are nostalgic. We just like those old songs and we're uncreative and so we can't write any new ones. We sing not because of tradition. We sing because in Christ we have life and place and meaning. We sing because in Christ we have the guarantee that violence, oppression, injustice, sin, and death itself have an expiration date. That's why we sing, O come thou day spring, come and cheer. 
our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death-dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Seven mile, do you have the songs of Advent in your heart? Do you rejoice that God in Christ has come to visit us, to vindicate us, and to accomplish his victory? Friends, no other song in your heart will lead to soul-sustaining joy. Let's pray.